My guest on this episode is Chris Selland. Chris is the CEO of Dipjar. This is the second time I've had Chris come on to talk. I just think he's such a clear thinker and somebody who has real experience in doing what he's talking about. So this episode is dedicated to working with investors. And Chris has real experience on starting businesses, raising money and selling businesses. And I think he's a really valuable resource for us to have on the show. Hope you enjoy. Hey, this is Tom Sullivan. Thanks for listening to Forging Ahead. I'm breathing some new life into this project by inviting guests to come on and teach us about a topic that they know as well as anyone on earth because they've done it and are doing it today. These are the real deal practitioners. If you enjoy this, please leave a review on Apple or send this to a friend. Thanks. Hey, this is Tom Sullivan with Forging Ahead, and I have one of our only ever repeat guests with me today, Chris Salland, who is the CEO of Dipjar. And I asked Chris to come back to help with slightly new direction for the podcast, where I'm going to invite guests on to take us through a subject that they know really well from experience. So we'll get into that in a second. But Chris and I last recorded in February of last year, and I wanted to save some space to do a little bit of a dip jar update. So how are you, Chris? I'm doing well. Thanks, Tom. It's good to be back with you. Um, Yes, since we last, well, we've spoken since, but since we last recorded in February, a lot has changed. So happy to to give an update. Um, So what's, what's going on? I guess take us through, obviously, there's a lot of crazy shit going on in the world and and how has that impacted dip jar and and i guess take us from maybe uh at some point last year until today um yes there is a lot of i'll I'll say crazy stuff but you're the host right (laughs) um even more even more so this morning um this is (laughs) what a day it's never Um, what a world what a week but um so but anyway not to get into all what's going on in the world um, in terms of our business, yes, you and I last spoke with February. It spoke in February when we had actually just moved into our new offices in Cambridge. Or actually, I think we were still moving in February. I think we moved our um, equipment, our inventory, our production equipment in February, and we we moved the people on March first, as I'm recalling. Um, and on March 10th, the world changed dramatically. I mean, it was changing already, but that was, I think, that was the day that Mark Cuban. Um, was sitting at the basketball game in that infamous mm. clip when he got the news that the NBA was canceling and everything was canceling. And so, so yeah, so we wound up shutting down our office about two weeks after the people moved in. I think we shut it down on the 10th, as a matter of fact. Um, you know, as you know, Dipjar sells to primarily the nonprofit space for fundraising type applications. And so that's really um, what our business is all about. And and of course, you know what a dip jar is—the physical dip jar. It's designed to be used where people gather at events and fundraising events, and um, in lobbies and places like that. So that business really pretty much came to a stop in March. So, so um, you know, we needed to decide what to do. Um, we were in the middle of you know gearing up for a good spring. Um, we had purchased a lot of inventory and things like that. And so we needed, we had some decisions to make some hard decisions to make fast. We went through all the SBA programs, so on and so forth. Um, but part of what we did during that time was we also reached out to some partners. And I know you and I talked about partners when we talked in February and I sort of ironically remember um, talking about kind of, you know, having these discussions earlier so that, you know, if suddenly something happens, you can get there. And yeah, that's, there was actually more than one, but one in particular, one of those conversations was, well, you know, if you guys are interested, we'd be interested in acquiring the business. Um, and so basically we found somebody who wanted to buy the company and, you know, myself and the board uh, went through, uh, probably took 60-ish days to go through kind of full evaluation. There was an offer made and we decided to do it. So, um, so we sold the business. Um, the deal closed in mid-June. Um, and you know, we didn't do a big press release or anything about that. It was just basically a change in ownership. I mean, honestly, I know every time there's any kind of financial investor deal, new investors come in, it wound up being an investor group 
that included some executives from that partner company I mentioned, as opposed to the partner company itself that bought us. So we're still running the business the same way, um, just under new ownership, essentially. And, um, you know, it took a lot of time and effort and work. And we had to scale the company down to kind of get to that point because, you know, we just, the business wasn't able to support a full team. I mean, we, at one point we were down like 80% in terms of the people we had on January 1st. Um, but now we've hired some of those folks back and we're building back. Um, so, uh, so anyway, you know, the business is recovering. I would say since about after Memorial day, it started recovering. Um, it's still very much in recovery. I would say net net, it probably set us back to like 2018 in terms of like where we are on our revenue curve, but we're back on sort of the same trajectory. Obviously, a lot unknown with the impact of COVID, how long this is going to last. Um, but, you know, there there were some events in the summer, golf outings and such, outdoor events, um, some different use. And then the other thing we did, which actually we're not formally announcing until next week, but by the time people hear this, I guess, um, we also created a virtual solution. So there is now, we were calling it a virtual dip jar, but now we're actually calling it called something, we're calling it Spark Virtual um, because we want to distinguish it from, because people know dip jar is a physical thing, but our virtual solution is going to be called Spark Virtual. We initially called it dip jar anywhere. Basically, it's an online dip jar. But now we've got a way that um, organizations can take donations online. And that was something we were kind of planning to do anyway. We accelerated over the last couple of months. So it's fully built. And next week, we're kind of announcing it to the world. Uh, so it puts us in a new market, creates new opportunities. So from that perspective, we're actually pretty excited about it. But obviously, you know, it's been, it's been a crazy odd year. But that's the update in the company. We are still here. We are still called Dipjar. Um, our legal name is actually slightly different now because we're a different corporation from a legal perspective and a tax perspective and all that. But but the company is the same, although we're working on some branding things around that too, because, you know, as as mentioned, Dipjar is kind of not just the name of the org, but a physical thing. Now that we've got virtual solutions, we're, we're looking at some things from a marketing perspective there as well. But, you know, it, it was, um, I guess, last thing I'll say on a more personal note, it was certainly painful having to um, leave people off, but, you know, is just a necessity. Um, I'm gratified we've been able to hire some of those folks back, other players on the team or people on the team, I should say. They're people, players, but um, who either we weren't able to hire back or had other offers. You know, the job market is recovering. Um, some other people found other employment. I've been glad to be a reference for some of them. So I would say most of the team has landed in a good place and some of them are back. And like I said, we're kind of building the org back at this point. So, so anyway, I'm. I feel like I'm repeating myself now, so I'll stop there. But that's the update on the business. I guess two questions to close that out. Um, is there any other period in your career that like, has been more challenging from a leadership perspective than what's gone on? Um, 2008 was certainly very challenging as well um, for different reasons. I was with a company at that point called Soundbite Communications, who had actually gone public in late 2007. Hmm. Um, we were one of the last companies at the IPO window in 07. Um, and <laughs> Soundbite was a fun ride until we went public. And it was almost immediately after we went public that you know the market started falling apart. And just to make it even more um, interesting, um, our primary market focus was credit. Um, so the credit market was like, we serve the nonprofit market now, which has been hard, hit hard. There was probably no market hit harder than the credit market in 2008. And that was pretty much our sole market focus. And we had just IPO'd. So, so that was certainly very challenging, but you know, because we were public, we had cash in the bank. So it was a different situation. Um, I wound up leaving the company later that year, but I guess that's the one time that I kind of remember comparable. And then, you know, I would, I would say, um, you know, not to bring up unhappy memories, but I certainly remember, I, I think like today's a day you're always going to remember where you were. Um, but even more so 9-11. Um, I was with a company that was kind of in deep trouble at that point anyway on 9-11. And I remember that, you know, similarly. And that was, that was a company that we also wound up selling it, although that was kind of a fire sale. So, but that, you know, that obviously was longer ago. It's hard to believe that was almost 20 years ago now. Yeah. So, yeah I mean, it just gets to, and I tell my kids until, you know, young folks who are mentoring and hiring look the economy goes through cycles right and it's these black swan things that usually cause them i mean they're sort of the typical business cycle but you see changes coming and speeding up and slowing down a little bit 
but then you just have this crazy stuff like coronavirus, 9-11, you know, the credit crisis, which, you know, maybe in some respects should have been foreseen, but um, what was the movie? But, um, but yeah, these, it's these crazy things that really throw things for a loop. And, you know, it's, look, it's hard. Sometimes some companies benefit, right? I mean, I guess people are saying Amazon has benefited a lot this year, not intentionally, but, um, you know, to the expense of kind of all the other retailers that have stores mm-hmm. uh, this year. But for the most part, you know, you just have to be able to ride these things out. So it's been an interesting year and certainly one that uh, I think we will all remember. So, and uh, I think some of this is going to bleed a little bit into next year too, but I have some optimism that, you know, at least by this time next year, things should feel fairly normal-ish. We'll see. (laughs) This episode of Forging Ahead is brought to you by Carrot Cake. Carrot Cake is a weekly newsletter that I write that helps you figure out what to read, watch, or listen to next. You can avoid that odd 15-minute period of thumbing through Netflix or trying to figure out what you should watch on demand by subscribing to this newsletter and getting fully vetted recommendations. The letter also contains a question or two every week that has been impactful for me to consider that I'm passing along to you. You can find Carrot Cake it is a Substack newsletter. So the URL is carrotcake.substack.com. Love to have you on the list. What about um, the one of the big things we talked about last time when we recorded was go to market. Does the development of Spark Virtual, does it open any potential new directions? Are you still going to be chasing the same style customer? Well, we're definitely staying focused, as a matter of fact, even more focused on not nonprofits and very specifically 501c3 nonprofits um, for a couple of reasons. Um, so we're, we're planning to stay focused on the same market. I would call it an adaptation to how they're doing things. Now, I will tell you, there's a lot of ways to, I mean, it's it's actually fairly trivially easy these days to set up a website to take donations if you're a nonprofit. So just doing that by itself um, for us, it's kind of an add-on to the dip jar. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're still using your dip jars and some of the things that are unique about the dip jar, this extends it to the online channel. But there's there's a lot of ways to raise money online. I mean, the GoFundMe's of the world. Um, so you know, there's. I guess you could say now we're competing with GoFundMe. Um, but, you know, at the same time, and I said I wouldn't get political and I won't, but this is a good example. Um, if you, um, the uh, Steve Bannon fake wall charity, that that was a charity. Um, it was obviously not really doing charitable things, but it was a registered charity. All that money was raised through GoFundMe. Um, I don't want to be in that position. Let's put it that way. I'm mm-hmm. not saying GoFundMe did anything wrong. How are they necessarily supposed to know? They were just the channel the money was raised through. But at the same time, there's a, there's a big issue out there with fake charities. And so we have to be careful about that when we go into the online world. So that's why I'm saying we're, we're going to be super, super restrictive on making sure that these are all, you know, valid licensed charities identified by the IRS and so on and so forth. So we're not going to throw it open for political campaigns and things like that. We've already been approached, as a matter of fact about, you know, can we raise money for politicians? There's there's actually specific legal requirements around that, around collecting data. Like you have to know who the money came from that, you know, we're not even going to try to meet. So we just say no to that. So mm-hmm. so we have things to think about, but I would say it's an adaptation for the market. But certainly, you know, real charities who are recognized and valid, you know, um, if this helps extend what we can do for them, great. Um, but we're not going to go hog wild either. Um, the whole um, Varsity Blues thing with, uh, you know, Felicity Huffman and Lori Laughlin and all of that, that was also a charity. So, and that was kind of how the money was funneled. So again, you just, you need to be cautious and cognizant, which we are going to do. We're definitely, we're doing a lot of policy and procedure work right now, just to make sure that, you know, everybody we're signing up is on the up and up. So, um, and, you know, certainly want to believe in the nonprofit world they are, but, you know, you have some bad actors out there, so you have to be careful of it. When you go, when you go online, it becomes really the wild west as well. So, uh, so we're certainly spending a lot of time on that as well. Yep. You ready for the big transition? Um, there's a lot of big transitions, but yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> let's go. So the, uh, the one that I'm shooting for here is we did, uh, about 13 minutes 
on dip jar and let's try to see if we can swing it around to what I wanted to talk to you about. Yeah. So we sort of hit a couple ideas back and forth and we settled on talking about working with investors. And I mm-hmm. think obviously the, um, the sale kind of makes that pretty relevant. And I know mm-hmm. that you have a lot of experience with that throughout the rest of your career. So I guess, um, how would you open that conversation? Like working with investors in general, and maybe there's something from the recent transaction that is relevant to start with. Yeah, well, I, I do think, you know, this was sort of a special situation, what happened this year. And, you know, I I had a great working relationship. I mean, I've been lucky to have a great relationship, great working relationship with both my old board and investors and my new board and investors. And they're two different groups of investors. But I think for listeners of the podcast who are just, you know, how they raise money, there's probably not a lot of super interesting stuff there. Okay. I mean, I think there's some things in context. Like, I think, you know, being upfront, your investors being, you know, being honest. Um, I mean, honesty sounds so Boy Scoutish. That's not my point. But, you know, disclosing when there are issues, um, those sorts of things. So there's some general comments, but I don't think there's much specific to what what this year has been through that's going to be generally applicable from a startup out there who is looking to raise money, which I think is the primary audience for this podcast. Um, But, you know, I would say that, you know, working with investors certainly requires transparency, it requires honesty, it requires being forthright. You know, a lot of it's about relationships. Um, You know, one of the one of the things, and I feel like we might have talked about this back in February, um, maybe it's a good place to jump off, is that, you know, even if your investors are your friends, and I both did and do have, consider myself friends with some of my investors, they're not there to be your friends. You know, they're there for reasons pertaining to their business. And if they're a venture firm or private equity firm, in a lot of cases, they're there to represent the interests of their investors. They have funds. And they have investors in their funds. So it's really important to sort of draw those lines. So that might be the best way I guess I could sort of transition from like what we've been through this year to more generally working with investors is, you know, one real key to working with investors is understanding what their motivations and motivators are and making the assumption that they're your friends, even if they are your friends, is dangerous and um, understanding their motivation and what they care about and why they care about it is really, to me, key to, you know, key to success. I think it certainly uh, was for us. I mean, by the way, I should also mention that some of our investors, both past and current, are individuals. It's actually their own personal money. We've also had that situation as well. So it might not be a fund, but it might be. Um, it really depends who you're raising from. I mean, if you're raising from angels, that tends to be the case, right? Angels, it's their own money. As opposed to VCs, VCs are um, managing funds, so and and private equity and such, and so they're representing other investors behind them. So I want to come back to uh, to see if we could do like a quick glossary of the different types of investors. But mm-hmm. before before we do that, um, the language of of working with investors for like somebody who's a brand new startup founder. Mm-hmm. Um, I bet some of the things that you even just said, angels versus VCs and people raising funds, where would you point somebody to learn how to speak this language if they didn't go to business school or if they um, <clears throat> are just kind of getting started? Because there's, it's a, it's, it can feel like a different language. And some of the stuff I sent you on cap tables and pre and post money and valuation yep. and LTV, right. like how would you advise somebody to learn some of that stuff? Well, I would tell you, you know, I, I, I went to business school and we got an MBA and they don't even teach much of this in business school. Business school tends to be more about bigger companies. Now, yes, I know business schools tend to have entrepreneurship courses and such where they teach some of this as well. So I'm not saying you're not going to learn any of this in business school. But um, I, I would sort of point to two places. I would say, first of all, there is a ton of good stuff online. Um, but I would also say, you know, and I'll say this for both both of my examples, there's quality um, as well, right? There's, there's so much quantity that you have to be careful about quality. Um, I would say that certainly there's a lot of good venture blogs out there, places you can research. I think two of the best ones, absolutely, um, Brad Feld and Fred Wilson. Fred Wilson has the AVC blog, and then Brad Feld is Feld Thoughts. I think they 
And then some of Brad's associates as well, because I think he's with Foundry Group now, or at least he was, I think he still is. Um, some of the Foundry Group folks do good blogs as well. Um, Brad also wrote, I know I know Brad a little bit, that's why I guess we're kind of on the same basis, but um, Mr. Feld, um, he wrote a book called Venture Deals that yeah. has been upgraded a few, updated a few times. Um, that's available on Amazon. That's pretty comprehensive in terms of the dictionary of all these terms and such. And so that's, that's a good place to go. So I, I do think, you know, that some of the best VCs are very generous with making this kind of information available online. So there's plenty of stuff to read. And I think if you started with Brad Feld and Fred Wilson, they are certainly venture investors as opposed to angel investors. Um, angel investing is a slightly different animal, but there's resources out there that talk about that too. Um, in that case, some of the angel groups like Launchpad and Walnut and such, um, you know, that's Boston area. There's others as well. Um, we worked with Walnut pretty closely last year. Um, like Christopher Mirable, um, he has a blog, M-I-R-A-B-I-L-E. I forget what it's called. He's, he's one of the uh, principals in Launchpad. Um, he does some good stuff as well on angel investing, which is slightly different. Because like I said, the difference between angels and VCs are angels are generally investing their personal money as opposed to VCs are investing from a fund. So it's some of their money might be in the fund, but it's not just their money. So that's And there is some important distinctions there. But anyway, online, Bradfeld, Fred Wilson, Venture Deals, stuff like that. And then there's also groups. And again, I'll talk to the Boston groups because that's where we are. Um, mm -hmm. I do a lot of work with the Startup Coalition. Um, they have monthly groups, they're obviously, or monthly meetings, they're obviously Zoom now. I actually just did one a month ago. Um, that's a good group. Um, the Capital Network is another good group. You know, these angel groups do get together monthly, although those meetings tend to be more like closed, obviously, to companies they're looking at. So you have to get an intro in there. But, but you know, I would say these types of networking groups, there's a lot more, are, um, are also useful. And of course, most of those meetings today are virtual, not live. Um, I would say with the latter, though, um, you have to be especially careful about quality. Um, you know, the people who come up and chat with you, there's a lot of kind of uninformed opinions out there as well. So, you know, I, I always say kind of, you know, start with those who are on stage because generally they've been vetted by the group. So they know what they're talking about because it's not hard to get bad advice as well. If you're just, or biased advice, um, if you're just sort of chatting with people over cocktails, whether live or virtual. So, but yeah, I would say generally speaking, the quality of the folks I've met at Startup Coalition is very good. I haven't been to Capital Network event in a while, but um, again, I know they're a well-respected group as well. So, so some of the local groups are good places to get kind of in person, see panels, um, and the like. Um, and you know, that's those are the Boston ones. There were different ones in in other cities as well. What about um, I guess even like before that, when you think about you know ABC business and whether or not they're going to pursue investment from outside money or you know either try to be self-funded through sales or other avenues like what do you think are the right reasons to try to go raise money um well the best reason to go raise money is that you know you have a plan and certainly a plan that will exist in your head but you probably going to need to document that plan if you have you know if you're trying to pitch investors and you can demonstrate how raising capital will help you accelerate the plan in a positive way so you know we created this thing here's how we're going to sell it but i need money to hire sales invest in marketing to go sell it or you know it might be this thing i need to build and i need this much money to build it and then once I build it, I'm going to sell it. And here's how the capital is going to be used. So, so it's good to have a plan. I, I would say it's not just good, but necessary to have a plan and then show how capital will accelerate the plan. Um, I would say it's even better to have traction against the plan. So the more, the more you know, progress you can make from a bootstrapping perspective, um, the better off you'll probably be, particularly if you're a first time entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, look, if the, um, you know, if somebody who's founded and successfully founded and started a few startups and is known in the venture community, you know, waves a business plan out there, they're probably going to have pretty early success raising money. But if you're not known and you don't have a track record, it's going to be very, very hard. So then the more you can substitute traction for a track record and, you know, show that, you know, we've raised this, this much money bootstrapping. And now if we can raise this much more money, here's how much faster we can go. That's really what we want to be able to do. So. I like that traction. Traction definitely track helps. record. 
Yeah, tra- good- traction. It's like yeah, it's like traction or track record, right? So um, yeah, I like that. If you're, if you're like one of the founders of HubSpot or you know, yeah, Dave Cancel probably has people showing up and yeah. saying, "Hey, if you're going to think about starting something, we've yeah. got some space in this fund for you." Yeah, like I, I spent a lot of time. I actually spent about a year there working as a consultant with Constant Contact in the early days. If you're a Constant Contact founder or HubSpot founder, I'm obviously talking about Boston companies. Or sure. A log me in founder or some, or, you know, go back further than that. Some company that's been successful. And, you know, then first of all, the investors are probably going to know you and trust you and see that you've already succeeded. And so there's a lot of pattern recognition that goes on with investors. But if you don't have that, and this is the first time. And, you know, and it's also kind of being recognized, not just as an employee, but as kind of part of the leadership group of those organizations that's important, right? I mean, Vertica is another good example. I worked at Vertica kind of later after the earlier days, but there's a lot of, it's funny, Vertica is one of the companies that doesn't get talked about that much. I don't know for why, for whatever reason, but a lot of the Vertica alums, Andy Palmer and the like are out there doing, you know, doing great things in the market too. Um, so if you're recognized for that, then that helps. But, you know, what's more important to, it's even important if you're recognized, but is to have some traction and be able to show some progress that you made. So. And I guess w- when you decide to, let's say we're going to take the route to go raise money, mm-hmm. um, I think this, this might be a good spot to hit like the different types of investors, but I tend, I, I've been a salesperson kind of my whole life. So I always look at everything through a sales lens, but mm-hmm. if you're going to pull like an initial list of people to pursue? How do you populate that list? Yeah, um, th- there's a bunch of ways you could do it. Um, I would say one thing would be to look for companies like you um, and look at people who've invested, particularly if they've invested successfully and made money in companies like you. Now, that could be a couple things. That could be in your market space. Like, you know, Tipjar, we sell to nonprofits. So, you know, I'm not looking to raise money right now. I actually am in the middle of a raise, but it's, it's a long story. So we'll go, <laughs> go into details. It's kind of in the other category. Okay. But, um, you know, look for other companies that have invested in nonprofit or other investors who invested in other companies in the nonprofit space who have made money, you know, have done well. So that would be, you know, somebody who's kind of invested in similar companies. Um, stage is also very critical. And that plays a big role in type, right? Because in sort of pre-seed, you know, there's, uh, I mean, there's a kind of acknowledged and there's no hard and fast rules around this thing about sort of, you know, bootstrap and friends and family kind of go together, right? That's either you're putting your own money in or you're calling your parents or what have you. And um, <clears throat> and then there's kind of the, you know, pre-seed and pre-seed stage. And that's oftentimes when you're dealing with angel investors, although there are certainly small funds that tend to focus. There are big funds too, but generally speaking, because that's still very, very early. Um, they might not be small in amount of money, but they tend to be smaller in terms of the number of partners and so on and so forth. And then you get into ABC round when you get into like the real VC world and start getting into private equity these days too, which to some degree VC is just a type of flavor of private equity. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you're just starting, um, a lot of times it's kind of friends and family bootstrapping traction and then find some angels who focus on your space. Now, Angel groups are interesting, I mean, because, you know, they tend to do a lot of their own events. They tend to be closed, but the Walnuts and the Launchpads in Boston, um, there's, you know, they, they meet often and different people bring different skill sets. And so, like, if they were going to, like, I actually, as I mentioned, I went with Walnut <clears throat> last year when we were recapitalizing. Um, and, you know, there were some folks at Walnut. There was a couple of people that I knew, which was kind of how the door got opened. Um, guy named Ben Litauer in particular. Ben and I have worked together in the past, so I knew him. So that was the initial connection. But then there was also people who knew our market and they shared their knowledge and expertise as well with some of the other angels and some of the other angels wound up coming into the field. So, um, so anyway, so it's, I guess it's market based or stage based and find investors who either have done or are looking to do because sometimes investors will kind of hang their flag out there and saying, we're looking for, you know, I mean, particularly funds like VCs are always looking for deal flow. So mm-hmm. they're going to make it known that, you know, if like I haven't, tip jar kind of, it's not how we position ourselves anymore, but we used to be an I- IOT company. You could still call us an I- internet of things company. Mm-hmm. There are certainly, if you're starting an IOT company, there are certainly investors out there. Like our, one of our former investors, Bolt would be a good example. 
who invest in IoT companies, right? So, you know, go talk to them. And then the other thing I'd say, because again, I'm kind of getting long-winded here. Sorry for that. But I would try to find a way in because a connection certainly helps, particularly if you're just starting out. And the um, the goals of the investors, like, you know, depending on the style of firm or whether somebody's cutting a check from their personal funds versus mm-hmm. funds, like, yep. um, early in our conversation, you mentioned like, trying to understand like the incentives or the motivation when somebody's going to invest in your company. Can you say mm-hmm. a couple, couple minutes about that? Yeah. Um, you know, look, investors want to make money. That's why they invest. Right. But the question is kind of how much money versus their risk profile. You know, I made a statement earlier that VC is essentially a form of private equity. I don't know. Some people might argue with that, but I think it's correct because it's private capital, but VCs tend to have a, you know, very, High, they invest in high risk companies, but because of that, they demand a high return as well. They need a high return because I think most people probably know by now, it's certainly been said so many times over the years that, you know, VCs make the majority of their money on a very small minority of their investments. It's like one in 10, Mm -hmm. you know, but then that one in 10 has to give like a 10x return or a 100x return to make up for all the other ones that failed, right? So you have to have a Google or an Amazon or you know some similar kind of highly successful company, maybe not that successful, but pretty damn successful in your portfolio to make, make up for all the other ones who don't go out of business. And that's what kind of defines what a VC is. Um, and so, so, and why that's important is because, and this is like, again, I feel like we might've talked about this earlier this year and other points in my career, I wouldn't necessarily say it supplies now, you know, you start a company, you take money, and then you find an exit, a buyer or something that might be willing to pay you two, three times your money, which you're like, hey, that's great. You know, and you as an early employee and a founder think that's a great deal. You want to take it. And then VC's like, no, we're not taking it. And that's where a lot of these issues come into play because for them, it's not worth it unless it hits a certain liquidity mm-hmm. threshold, right? That is going to be acceptable for them and their investors and they'd rather wait and wait for a better deal to come along. So, and that's oftentimes where a lot of friction comes in and, you know, there's many stories of this over history, you know, where, um, you know, there's friction between the management team and the investors and it tends to be over that type of thing because the thresholds, the expectations are just different. So the more you can understand that, the better off you are. Um, you know, angels, the funny thing about working with angels, and I'm not saying I speak for all of them because they're all different, obviously they're investing their own money, but there's definitely angels out there who just like to sort of support the startup community. It doesn't mean they'd like to lose money, but they are maybe a little less rigid about making return and they're a little more trying to help. I mean, they're people who in essence are looking to give back to the entrepreneurial community and such. Um, and, um, you know, like we were lucky enough in Dipjar to have Joe Caruso. He's a well-known investor in uh, the Boston area who he, he does a lot of investing. And I know, you know, I, I don't know Joe super well because he invested before I got involved, but he's a good example of an investor who really is as much about supporting startup as he is about, um, you know, as he is about making money, although certainly wants to make money as well lose money, but, but, um, you know, it's uh, it kind of gets into their strategy for how they how they operate. So, is that what what kind of breeds the sort of crazy language that you hear from entrepreneurs who decide to raise? Like, you almost have to go into those rooms talking about things in the billions instead of being a little more reserved. Like, being <laughs> reserved in those rooms seems like it wouldn't serve you well at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, the how big could this get? is certainly something that particularly, you know, really all investors, I shouldn't say just VCs, will care about, right? So if you're, if you're going in, they're going to want to see it being a big potential market opportunity. It doesn't mean you have to be a big company today, but if you were successful along your plan, this could be very, very big. So, you know, so I don't know if I was going to, you know, go and show how I could build a very successful business. I don't know, selling, you know, the lawn guys outside, right? Like maybe I design a better, like one more blade or something like that. And, you know, you can build a very successful business around that. Right. But as a matter of fact, it's funny because I was um, talking to somebody recently and this was more of a private equity thing, but um, maybe a better example, because I'm not looking at the guy who's outside mowing my lawn or about to, um, but a guy who restroom supplies, and actually, that's a pretty big market, right? But again, it's not 
it's not going to be Google. Let's put it that way. Right. Um, and so, you know, there's investors who invest in a business like that. But, you know, if I figure out a better way to do restroom, you know, public restroom supplies, it's unlikely that's going to be a VC deal. Now, you could have said that about Amazon. Amazon initially was about books, right? But obviously, they made it much bigger. Had Amazon only been books and state books, you know, of course, they obviously didn't. But, you know, so the, so the size of the market, the size of the potential market matters a lot to how big this could be and whether this company has the potential to hit those kind of thresholds. So anyway, enough of the hypothetical example. But, <laughs> yeah. But could, there, so. yeah, definitely. Could we um, spend a minute on the relationship piece? I'd like to go like maybe some specifics if you can on mm -hmm. after you've raised, you have this period of time where you've taken money and you basically have signed up for some kind of a financial outcome that would be beneficial to the investors. So between those two points, mm -hmm. there's a lot of stuff that happens day to day and month to month. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk about how to maintain or deepen relationships with your investors and maybe mm -hmm. the flip side of like, what is somebody who's bad at that mm -hmm. look like also? Um, so yes, I will do that. I mean, I'm in that right now, right? Yeah. I mean, I just sold the company to a new group of investors in June. So I'm actually in that period. Um, and again, I'm not saying I'm doing it hundred percent right, but generally speaking, I would say set up, uh, you know, one, one way to say is like communicate regularly and be honest. But I think the best way to do that is set a set of KPIs. I just did this yesterday to close the month. At the end of every month, I basically established a set of key performance indicators, KPIs. In mm -hmm. our case, we have three ways we make money. They basically line up with those. By the way, this is not like audited financials. This is just like, how'd September go? You know, we got these three things. And September actually went pretty well. Like August was a little eh. So, and I do these things every month and every month, like on the first of the month, they're pretty damn close. I send a note to the investors. I say, here's how we wrapped up the month on these KPIs. You know, August was eh. Here's why I think it was eh. a little bit of editorial. So you just get a regular cadence and you be transparent and honest. Um, it was kind of painful to send the August note because again, these people just invested in June. And August was, it wasn't awful, but you know, but everybody understands we're also in recovery and so on and so forth. So I also talked about why I thought it might have been just an okay month, why I wasn't so great. And, you know, some of the things I thought were going to get better in September. And sure enough, they did. But the point is regular cadence, communicate regularly, be open, honest, trustworthy. Um, what it doesn't mean is you don't want to like spam your investors every day with, you don't want to ask them every silly question. You know, you have to show the ability to kind of make decisions. So you really want to kind of keep this to the high level stuff. And that's the, I think the art of it is being high enough, or low enough on kind of a priority scale. What do you share? What do you not share? Um, is it significant enough? What do you share as like, I did this and you should be aware of it as opposed to before I do this, I want your opinion on it. As opposed to like, before I do this, we need to vote as a board on it, right? I mean, there's there's kind of different levels of things there and making those judgments is important. And again, it may not be as formal as a board, but certainly if somebody's got their money in, you know, I think they, they have an expectation. So I would, say, I would say set up a regular communication cadence, um, decide what you're going to communicate about, make it pretty much the same. That's why I was talking about the KPIs so that mm -hmm. like, it's not just like the random note from the CEO who I put money into this month, but it's like, okay, here's the monthly report. And, you know, I would say that for most investors, that, that probably helps. And, uh, you know, I don't think there's a defined format for that. I mean, I do think KPIs generally are a good thing to do, but mm -hmm. I know I don't have one, but, um, but that's kind of what I've set out to do. Now I would say, um, and I won't name names here, but there was, there was a startup I worked with who the investor was a wonderful person, but didn't like to communicate bad news. And so, you know, communication just fell out of sync and, you know, going, becoming a black hole is not a good thing. Mm -hmm. So, so having like a, my investor report has to go out at the first of every month kind of thing is a good thing because one way or another, you need to put something out and, and it's really hard to push the send button when it wasn't a great month or, you know, it could be quarterly when you get further along. I do think monthly is actually a good idea early stage. I don't think it needs to be more frequent than that. But, you know, you have to do it and it sort of gets you in the practice of doing it. So I think it's all about communication, structured communication, regular communication, 
you know, it's over communicating, but not over over communicating, so to speak. What is um? What's the engagement like? I guess two part question would be like when you go out to raise, is there like do you know what you're signing up for from like an individual investor participation level? So uh, my guess is that some investors. Um, this is just projection. I have no idea. I've never raised money, but some folks maybe like to roll up their sleeves and maybe like make intros and help out. And other folks just kind of want to be sort of silent partners and Mm -hmm. maybe advise at a higher level. Like when you go out and raise, are you aware of that as you're raising? Or is that something where on your third month of sending out your KPIs, you're like this, this person, this man or woman is like really locked in and they respond every time. Like, Mm -hmm. can you say a little bit about that? Um, yeah, well, you know, just to clarify for me though, we're we talking about kind of before they've invested or after they've invested because um, sort of transition to if you're pitching investors as opposed to somebody's already invested. Um, I would say the communication is quite different if they've already put their money in or if they're considering putting their money in. So yeah, I guess I guess pre pre investment, right? When you're pitching people, do you know ahead of time like this is a person that's going to like almost become a light employee where they're going to want to like be involved in the day to day versus this particular investor wants a monthly update. They're never going to respond to it. They just, they're reading it, but that's about it. Yeah. You should generally know by reputation. I mean, early stage, very early stage, like startup stage is going to gravitate more toward the former. I'm most of the investors. I wouldn't say all, um, but most of the investors who invest in very early stage companies are going to want to be hands-on because they're going to realize you need it if they have any experience doing it, at least some hands-on assistance. And again, that may just be like making a phone call to make an intro for you um, to a big account or a big partner or something like that. Um, so yeah, I would say if you, if you do your research, that stuff should generally be pretty obvious. And when I say do your research, I mean that goes beyond visit their website and see what their website says. It's, you know, look at who they know on LinkedIn, who you know, um, hopefully there's some connections, reach out to some of those people, scan the media for other deals they've done, see if, <clears throat> you know, I mean, a lot of times investors aren't necessarily getting quoted in the press about their portfolio companies, except in the form of press release, but how they've sort of talked about it. So, and that, that should give a general sense. But in the early stage, and early stage investors mostly tend to be pretty hands-on. There are definitely the, you know, the 500 startups kind of approach, which, like I said, I think maybe um, I mentioned Joe Russo and Bantam Group earlier. They're kind of more of the 500 startups which approach. He do a big portfolio. So he's not, he's a little maybe less hands on, although certainly very happy to get on the phone from my experience. But, but yeah, a lot of investors, early investors tend to, you know, particularly angels, I mean, they, they're not investing necessarily in dozens or hundreds of companies. They might, be looking for one or two or three or six. Usually they want to go bigger than one or two, but they're going to be pretty hands-on with you. So, um, but anyway, the, I think the question you were also asking was um, around, you know, I mean, pseudo employee, you know, it's interesting because this kind of gets into early stage. I mean, one way of investing is obviously investing time as opposed to money and a lot of early employees. And that's kind of the trade-off for equity, right? You're not necessarily going to be able to pay them as much salary as they might have been making at the big co. So you pay them in equity instead, which is basically they own a percent of the business and contribution for the time and energy they're giving. So they're they're investing. They're just investing their time and energy and knowledge and uh, and that instead of uh, writing a check. Mm-hmm. And you know that is a, that is absolutely a form of investment. Um, and so, but uh, you know, and in some cases they may write a check as well. Although I haven't been in. A, some you know where somebody basically becomes like an operating partner and they write a check it's in every situation i've ever worked in it's generally speaking one or the other right so they're they're working for equity maybe some cash depending what position you're in and you know if you can afford to pay them but um you know but they're either they're either that or uh, i guess there's some people in the middle but i haven't had too much experience working with that it's usually one or the other can you um say a little bit about we don't have to name any names or anything, but I'm I'm curious as to like what um, your experience has been like, maybe with some frustrating investors to work with versus like some of the you know more CEO friendly um, investors. Like, what types of 
things are they doing that are helpful, not helpful, time consuming, like that type of angle? Um, yeah, you know, I mean, honestly, I haven't had too many really bad experiences and I really haven't. I've had individual days where, you know, I've had tough meetings and tough discussions, but I wouldn't say the relationship's been bad. Um, and I, I can say that honestly, I'm not just like trying to be protective, but I think a lot of that comes down to doing the right due diligence and such. Um, so I, you know, it, it's funny too, because, and even it's in some cases, it's some of these same people, there's times where I've had investors who have reputations as being hard to work with, but I think in reality, they're just looking for honesty. I think that they're, you know, they're looking for spin. And I think a lot of it is the disconnect and expectations or, you know, let me put it this way. I think some of the best investors I've worked with have really, really good bullshit detectors. And that's why they're good investors. <laughs> and if you go in and you try to bullshit them, it's going to go bad in a hurry. Mm -hmm. And a lot of entrepreneurs are bullshitters. And so they go in and then they say, oh, this guy or gal is really hard to work with. Or they're really tough. It's like, no, they're not. They just, you know, they didn't buy what you were selling. And by the way, it doesn't mean you were bullshitting them, but they think you are. So, so I don't know. I, I think investors just like to hear straight scoop. I mean, again, I'm lumping a lot of people together here. Um, so I haven't had too much experience like that. Um, I just think that, you know, honesty, transparency. And I guess the other thing, though, is that, and it's funny, this is maybe because I've been doing this for a long time. I mean, I've, I've kind of reached the point in my career, like, I, um, since we sold the company, like, again, we didn't do any big press release or anything about that. I, I, I get questioned oftentimes, like, oh, what are you going to be doing next? When are you going to leave? You know, and I'm like, I'm not, I have no plan to leave. I mean, first of all, part of this deal was that I committed that I would stick around. I'm planning on sticking around. Right. But the other thing is, you know, I'll qualify that by saying, like, look, so it's also, it's their money. It's up to them if they want to keep me around. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times that comes from a protectiveness. And, you know, the situation I'm in, by the way, I wasn't the founder. So I can afford to maybe be a little less emotionally detached. I guess what I'm saying is I personally am totally good with if the investors were to make a decision that I'm not the right guy to leave, lead the business anymore. And they decided either they wanted to remove me or put somebody in above me or what have you. Um, you know, and, and again, it's easy for me to say hypothetically, right? I mean, you know, it's not fun to hear it, but if that day comes, that day comes. I'm okay with that. Um, it's going well. So I'm happy. I like them. They like me. You know, I committed to stay here. It's great. But I do think a lot of founders struggle with that. And I, I also know the me earlier in my career, and it has nothing to do with the age. It has more to do with, I guess, experience and, you know, where other parts of your life are is you get emotionally attached to something, right? I think a lot of entrepreneurs get very emotionally attached to their startups, particularly, obviously, of course, when they founded the startup, it's their baby. Mm -hmm. And so the thought of like, oh, my God, if the investor gets upset, they're going to look for somebody else. They're going to look to push me aside and replace me is so terrifying that then <clears throat> it takes them down the path of, you know, manipulating what they're saying or I wouldn't say fabricating, although some do fabricate, but at least spinning things in a way. And then once you start spinning, those bullshit detectors start going off and things go bad in a hurry. And, you know, I've seen that kind of from the outside. Um, I probably saw it a little bit at some company I was with, you know, earlier in my career, because, um, you know, I started doing the startup thing back in the 90s, really. Um, and so, you know, it was probably me to some degree back then, but that was a while ago. But, um, I, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of... Um, rambling here, but I think the net net is, you know, it's all, it's back to being all about communication and communicating clearly and honestly and transparently, but also, you know, understanding that it goes back to the original question, I guess you asked about what you're signing up for, right? That the investor is, they get a say, you know, they, they get a say in what happens. And one of the things they may say is, you know, Chris, you, you know, we've, we don't think you're the right guy anymore or, you know, usually be more something like we have this other, you know, executive we think can come in and help accelerate the business. And, you know, you have to not be afraid of that. And I think when you're a founder earlier, it's really hard not to be afraid of that. And that's oftentimes when, when these situations arise. But I, I've been fortunate enough not to kind of be through that um, really too badly. I mean, I've seen, I've seen it, 
but it's been less happening to me. It probably has a lot to do with, you know, I haven't really, I, I did found the company back in the nineties and I did sell it, but it wasn't venture backed. Um, and so, you know, the, um, I, I'm more of a like sales marketing, go to market guy. So I'm usually the guy who gets brought in by the founders as opposed to being the founder. So I guess it's been easier for me to take an arm's length approach to that um, than some founders might have. But that's oftentimes when these, trouble, when these troubles arise. If somebody's in the middle of a raise right now mm-hmm. um, and you had like one, two or three things that you think would be most helpful for them to hear, what would they be? Um, well, I will tell you the question I would ask them to see how far they really are along. Um, and you know, it's Axel Bashara, who's one of the principals of Bolt. Um, and I had worked with him back when he was at, um, uh, Atlas Venture as well. Um, I actually wrote a blog about this. I have to dig it up, but who's your lead? So it's all about a lead investor because, um, the lead investor is the one who's basically putting the price on the round. It goes back to a question you asked earlier, right? Which is, um, your expectation, their expectation. There's a lot of investors. As a matter of fact, I'd say almost all investors, unless they really don't like you or really don't like your plan, you'll have meetings where you know you'll go in or they'll come to you and they'll say, "This isn't a fit for us. Thank you very much." But the reality is, particularly in the venture world, we'll focus on deal flow. They're going to want to kind of keep channels of communication open. So almost all meetings are going to, um, or I would say a large percentage of meetings are going to end with something like. Yeah, this is really interesting. Keep a surprise. Let us know how the raise is going. You often get the, if I can be helpful, you know, and it all sounds good, but it's really nothing. Um, it's nothing substantial until you have somebody who says, yes, I want to do it. And here's the deal I want to do. Now you have to go with an ask. And I think this was the question you were asking earlier. You have to have in your mind, you know, I would say another resource, by the way, is Shark Tank. You know, if you watch Shark Tank, it's always like, what are you looking for? We're looking for this much money for this percent of the business. And by the way, that's for an equity deal. Oftentimes these things go into debt and royalty structures, there's other kinds of structures. You have to have an idea what you want, but you have to have an investor who comes back and says, this is what I'll put in for this. These are my terms, i.e. a term sheet. Now, a term sheet's when you get that on paper, which is where it should go. Mm-hmm. But that's your lead. It's whoever sets the terms of the deal. You know, blah, blah, blah said they're interested. Blah, blah, blah said this looks really cool. Blah, blah, blah said call me, they'd call me back in a month. Even blah, blah, blah made intros for me is all very nice, but honestly, it's totally meaningless. The, the lead investor is the one who puts the terms down. And they're, you know, either they accepted your terms, which is possible, but unlikely, or at least some version of the terms, or they've given you terms that they're willing to do the deal on. When you have that, then assuming it's acceptable to you, of course, then you've got something, then you can go back to all those other investors and say, you know, now again, the term sheet is when you want to do this, when you actually have it in writing. And you have to realize term sheets, generally speaking, are non-binding. So it could still go away, but at least you've got something in writing that you could show people that says this investor is willing to do this deal because investors usually like to bring in other investors as well um, to sort of, you know, help from their risk return standpoint, because you still get the return. It helps, you know, modify some of the risk profile. But it's really about getting so, and that if you actually have a lead investor or potentially multiple lead investors, i.e., multiple term sheets, then you're like well along in your fundraising, right? If you're still without a lead, without a term sheet, you're not as far along as you think you are, despite all the nice conversations you might think you're having with all the friendly VCs who, and other angels who basically said, "Yeah, come talk to us." So, so that's kind of the ter- determinant of um, whether. You know whether you're far along or not. Again, Axel Bashar wrote a blog post about that. I still kind of remember it was a couple of years old, but it's worth worth. Yeah, it. I'll hunt that down and yeah, you know, put a link to it as well. That yeah, yeah. The how can I be helpful thing? It's like, well, I came here for you to invest. So if you're not going to do that, you can't. I don't think you can really be that helpful. And and very seldom, you know, are you going to um, get that on the first meeting, right? right. So, so you know, I mean, you might, but. Um, yeah, here we go. I think I found it. All we need is a lead isn't as promising as you might think. So if you'd search for that, you'll find Axel's blog post in just a quick search. Okay. Um, and that's right. It's like, yeah, I got all these great meetings, all these interests. Do you have a lead? No, I don't have a lead yet. And once you get a lead, it's like, yeah, that's everything. Um, but anyway, so yeah, and you'll, you're going to get a lot of like, let me know how I can be helpful. I mean, that's like the famous closing line, right? From Silicon Valley. Yeah, there's like meme yeah. Twitter accounts that are yeah. called 
let well, me know how I can be helpful. Look, they're, you know, they're trying to be, and, and most of those, I, I, I guess I wouldn't say all, but most of those are probably sincere. Yeah. Right. But at the same time, because they kind of want to stay in touch with how you're doing, but it means it basically is, I'm not, I'm not going to lead this, at least not yet. Um, but when you have a lead, feel free to give me a buzz back. Right. Because maybe I'll participate because there's lead investors and participating investors. Right. And so I feel like I'd want to hear that message way more than let me know how I can be helpful. It's like, go find a lead and then come back. It's like, okay, that's something yeah, I can actually not, do. They're not really going to say that that explicitly <laughs> generally. Right. right. That's kind of what that like keep in touch, you know, yep. warm, keep in touch. Let me know if it could be helpful really means. So, and again, you know, the, the other thing is it's not even just about money or interest. It's also about time and bandwidth. Like, it's very, very possible, and I've seen this dynamic for sure. You know, where investors are just overcommitted. Um, they, you know, they've only got so much emotional bandwidth, right? The be- the best investors they do want to be actively hands on with their company, and they realize there's only so many companies they can be hands on with. So they may sincerely be interested in participating, but they don't want to do the day to day work, you know, because they can't because they don't mm-hmm. have the bandwidth and. A lot of times geography, by the way, that's another thing I'll tell you, which is probably a whole nother conversation, but like the Boston West Coast things. I've seen this and I've been in the situation where, and by the way, like HubSpot pulled it off. It's doable. But, um, you know, if you're going to try to raise West Coast money from the East Coast, now in these days of Zoom meetings and COVID, it might be a little bit different. Um, that means every time there's a board meeting, the investor is going to have to get on a plane and fly 3,000 miles. That's a lot more commitment than driving to see the portfolio company that's three miles down the road from mm-hmm. Menlo Park to Mountain View or whatever. It's probably not three miles, right? But that's one of the biggest challenges because, again, you know, being able to get together live these day and age, it's a little different. But you know that that has an impact too. So, so the you know the amount of commitment and the amount of time an investor is going to be put in, be able to put in, is particularly in the early stages, almost as important as money. So they may be very sincere. Keep in touch. I want you to call me back if you find a lead investor, but it's not going to be me because if it's going to be me, I'm going to have to put a lot of not just money in it and not just terms and risk and everything associated with it, but I'm going to have to put time in as well. And I don't have the time and I've had plenty of those conversations over here also. Okay. Yeah. So I blew by our um, our stop at New York. Okay. Yeah, well, it's my fault. I've been rambling. So is there anything you want to uh, wrap up with? Um. No, I would just say, you know, look, I mean, I'm happy to kind of be available beyond this. I mean, people can find me on LinkedIn. I don't generally do like LinkedIn connections with people I don't know. I kind of value it, but, you know, you can use it mail and stuff like that. I mean, I'm, I'm always happy to talk to people. You know, you have to be careful about advising because, you know, that becomes a rabbit hole that can go pretty deep pretty early. But, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I... I guess the other thing we, we don't even have time to go there is there's a lot of um, it's interesting. VC's always been about equity. Um, I would say, particularly if you've got any level of traction, there's some really interesting models emerging around debt. And people hear debt and they get scared for good reason, by the way, because debt means you have to pay it back. But there's things like revenue-based finance. There's kind of different models now where if you've actually got a business that is starting to produce something, um, you can raise money without necessarily having to give away equity in different structures. So I would say like if I'm early stage as well and I've got some... Now, if you're just an idea, this is not going to work. But if you've got some traction, some sales, I would also say that revenue-based financing is another avenue to look at. It's different. Um, It is definitely, like I said, you're, you're signing. And when you're the founder or the CEO, you're putting your name on the line and you know, you might get asked to do a personal guarantee and things like that, which basically means they can go after your house and things like mm-hmm. that, right? So you have to really believe what you're doing, but good investor is going to look for commitment, but there are other models out there. And so I would say that's that's a nice thing about this market too, is things are opening up and there's different ways to do things. It doesn't mean they are or aren't right for you, but depending on what kind of business you're running, you might, you know, think broadly, think out of the box, look out of the box, because there is a lot of money out there despite everything. And <clears throat> looking for places to put it and looking for opportunities to invest that match with their profile. So I, you know, look broadly, think broadly. And I think revenue-based financing is something to really look at as well. 
So. Yeah, I'll have to do some research there. I'm not even familiar Yeah, there's, with a, that, there's so. a couple of good books on that that have been written, and the names sort of escape me of who wrote some of those books. But if you go and you Google um, revenue-based financing, you'll see. Because if you actually have sales, there are alternatives to giving up equity that can be deployed in pretty early. I wouldn't say way early. I wouldn't say like the very beginning. But if you've got some traction, there are things you can do there as well um, that that might be good alternatives and, and sometimes are more available early on. Although again, you know, they may come along with a personal guarantee or something like that as well. So, um, so you have to be of course thoughtful about those things too. So, yeah. Well, let's wrap. Thank you yeah. so much. Um, there's so much there. I got to go back and listen and start to pull, pull some of the wisdom out. Like our previous episode, um, you had given that piece of advice that I never heard about, like even when you first start a business, like make a list of five people that might be able to buy you or might mm-hmm. be interested in buying you. It's like, it's so um, just kind of counterintuitive to the way that I think, but it's like, yeah, why would you, you're going to start a business. Why not start something that like, there's no benefit and degree of difficulty. Like you might as well pick something that's got mm-hmm. that type of attractiveness. So. Um, I know that yeah. I'll go back and find some in here too. And I, I know I said this last time, it doesn't mean you're building it to sell it, but it means that, I mean, honestly, that is very related to kind of what happened to us last year, right? was we got to a point where we kind of needed to think differently and, you know, pick, yeah, picked up that list and that ultimately did result. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, okay. thanks so much, Chris. I'll talk thanks, to you soon. Uh, always a pleasure. <laughs>